Um, I think we probably need to be developing some of those uh, more effectively. Um, I think a lot of the, the stuff. Yes, on again. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I talk, I'm good. <laughs> You're no boom mic operator. Um, a lot of the stuff that I talked about, uh, I think can be particularly effective with, uh, with administrators. Um, one of the things that, that we've been doing um, is borrowing a lot of the, the concepts and, and approaches from motivational interviewing to uh, work with groups and to, to work and try to help advance a policy agenda. Uh, it doesn't fit directly in all cases, but I think some of those principles can be very effective. Uh, um, so, um, you know, meeting people where they're at. Um, you know, and, and, and eliciting, um, you know, eliciting some change talk, trying to get to a, a, a common place, and asking, you know, can I tell you more about, you know, the approach that I'm taking or the, uh, you know, a strategy I think might be useful, uh, I, I think really can be effective. And part of that is very simply relationship development uh, and understanding the self-interest of of the people that you're talking to. Um, so if you know where that person is coming from and you can try and help align your strategies with where they're coming from and, and give them something uh, to jump on board with you, you're not gonna totally align, um, but the extent that you can um, or the extent that you can accentuate um, those alignments, I, I think the, the better chances you have for success. Um, but the foundation for that is, is having a good relationship. And I'm kind of a jerk, so I, I understand that that's not my role. <laughs> yeah, oh, go ahead. Um, repeating the question for people listening remotely, what screening recommendations are there? You know, if it's, if it's for an assessment, there are a lot of tools that guide it. If it's literally a brief screening, arguably the most well-known and most well-studied screening instrument is the audit, the Alcohol Use Disorders Identification Test. That comes from the World Health Organization and has particular value because of its value outside of North America. With the campuses that are increasingly seeing more international students, that's very useful. The audit is, um, the other nice thing about the audit is you can actually make uh, uh, like referral recommendations and document why that was made. Because in the, if you Google audit, A-U-D-I-T, and WHO, one of the first three things you get on Google is the audit guide. In the audit guide is a list of four zones. If it's this score, at best give any simple advice. If it's this score, they probably need a brief intervention. If it's above this, you should refer them to a more thorough assessment than just the audit. So for true screening, that's a great tool. And you can even justify next steps with it. If you're using it in a counseling or health center, you're like, wow, that's 10 items. There's an audit C, which is only three items. And if people are like, I don't have time for three items, NIAAA has a single item that just gets that, that binge idea. How many times in the last two weeks have you had five or more drinks for a man, four or more drinks for a woman? But I would think the audit is a tool you could certainly do. Um, if you're doing a formal assessment, I mean, there are, a lot, there are so many tools. We use the Brief Drinker Profile um, just because it's free and it's in the public domain and it has, uh, it's been re well researched. It was developed by Bill Miller, father of motivation interviewing, and Alan Marlat. Uh, who did relapse prevention in the work I showed you here. Uh, and again, just for a more thorough assessment, that's a nice tool. I don't know what you would add to 
Um, yeah, actually, um, some of the, the work that we've done as part of our uh, college systems project, um, working with Ken Winters on our campus, um, actually went through and, and assessed the different uh, brief screening tools and provide a uh, kind of a, a matrix of its own just of screening tools. Uh, and, and, and that's published uh, as well. Um, what we found when we, when we surveyed colleges were the, the vast majority, or the majority of schools were using something that wasn't, um, wasn't uh, validated and was, had never been tested with college level students. But the beauty of that is there are actually several of them that are validated, that are tested with the college students, and very importantly, are free. Um, so we, we make some recommendations about what, what those are and advocate for schools um, and, and places that are interfacing with students um, to use those kinds of tools. The, the audit is, is uh, my particular favorite. Yeah, we've heard about those, and they use, uh, as part of their program, eCheckup, and eCheckup is in College AIM. Um, uh, they use a lot of other programs that were either outside the scope of College AIM review. Uh, one last thing is, I'm glad to hear you say the audit, because I was like, uh-oh, what would, what would you recommend? The main thing I would say, though, is when you're asking about drinks, again, you have to define what counts as a drink. I'm an author on a study where we did market intercept interviews <coughs> on college campuses, and we said, tell us how much you've had a drink in the last two weeks, and they fill it out. And then we trained the provider to act like they screwed up. Go, oh, sorry, I'm so stupid. I was supposed to tell you a drink means this, 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 or this. Could you do it one more time? And their estimates on how much they drink went up 30 seconds later. So if you just say, how many drinks have you had? Well, I only have two. Okay. Two what? And really do what you can to define that before completing a measure like that. That's important too. What else in terms of questions or comments people have? Um, that's a complicated question, of course. Um, and, and it's one that, uh, you know, a lot of the issues we tr are dealing with um, in, in, you know, uh, on this topic, um, it kind of cuts both ways, right? So um, if you have kind of unregulated, um, you know, heavy use outside that's surreptitious, um, you know, happening in a parking lot or maybe in a commercial establishment that's not, uh, you know, maybe not directly under control, um, if you want to, you know, argue that bringing alcohol inside of a sports stadium um, is, is safer, um, you know, that's, that argument has been routinely made. I'm not sure I believe it, but there's some kernels of, of, of truth in there, I think. One of which is, you know, if you're selling alcohol at $8 a cup, um, you have now some, you know, environmental economic availability control over, uh, over that. Um, so, you know, I, I think you have to look at the broader mix. You also have to look at the motivations of, you know, the NCAA and, and uh, um, you know, vendors like Airmark. Um, I mean, they want a piece of that pie as well. Um, so, you know, how can you... Um, leverage that very complicated situation into prevention? Um, I, I think it's an open question, and I think it's one that needs a lot more research. There have been, I can think of maybe a dozen studies that have looked at that broad issue. Um, we need a lot more work in that area. Um, you know, NCAA has been uh, very reluctant to engage with researchers like myself on these topics because they think we're gonna um, we're gonna tell them not to do something that they're gonna make money at. Um, so.
So that's that's one of the challenges. We have a challenge with with our own athletic department um, in terms of um, talking, even having a conversation about these issues. And the, your you know your colleague to your right uh, brought up the the sponsorship issue. Um, in, at our place, um, even though I have personal relationships with some of the folks in athletics, they do not want to talk to me about any of this stuff. And so it's hard to even make progress. I can take, I can take two <laughs> of those parts. And the, and the two, summarize those four well, questions I think I heard. No, well, first, thank you for the very nice yeah. feedback. And for those listening remotely, the two that I can, I can mention, uh, I mentioned that there's more research that needs to be done on cultural adaptations. And you asked about what research has, uh, has looked at the impact of culture. I mean, everything from social norms and what is acceptable. Do we do things in bars here that we would never do in other cultures, other countries? And I mean, that's, we, we work on that when looking at students studying abroad as well, as an example. Um, the two main things that have been looked at is uh, uh, looking at adaptations and any, and the thing that has been explored the most is norms. If you go, you, you say this, but here's what the typical person does. What if I don't identify with the typical person? Um, and so it's getting a sense of who in the referent group is going to be most salient and relevant to anyone that you do research with. That research has been done to a degree, but so much more needs to be done. We find that um, a lot of times it's, it's still looking at what the typical person does results in the biggest behavior change, but being thoughtful and sensitive about norms that are given, for example, uh, becomes important too. Um, the other piece, uh, uh, well you mentioned, again there are multiple, multiple pieces in there. The idea about causation correlation, I think you're very right. There are things that generally will hang together. I showed you the information on as drinking goes up, students saying they're tired all the time increases and GPA goes down. I mean, what's interesting is if you ask students, what gets in the way of your academic success? The top three answers from the National College Health Assessment aren't drinking or drug use. It's being stressed, being tired all the time, and being anxious. But what do we know about going to bed with a positive blood alcohol level? throws off REM sleep, and the next day, increases in anxiety, increases in sleepiness, increases in happiness, increases in irritability. So even if it's not causal, but there's something correlational, it goes back to what's important to the student. If a student says, I don't want to talk about my drinking, I want to talk about how to make my sleep better, there's a backdoor conversation we can have about alcohol that will still get at sleep as the topic that's most important to the student. And the other ones are more environmental. In your realm. Yeah, um, I mean, a couple things. I'll touch on the, the, the cultural uh, question, and, and this comes up a lot. I used to have a slide on this in some of the talks that I give. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of hand-wringing about, oh, it's, you know, it, it's cultural. It's, you know, it's this big amorphous thing that we can't really do a good job of defining or, or doing anything about, and, th and that kind of leads to sort of throwing up our hands and, and being frustrated. Um, and, and I think that relates a little bit to your question about what are these cultural influences. Um, culture or cultural influences um, tends to be kind of a catch-all for this amorphous set of causes that uh, are impacting on, on people's behavior and on their outcomes. Um, that, that we might care about. And, um, and I think we need to be very particular about how we're defining what does, what does culture mean and what does culture mean very specifically for, for alcohol. Um, you know, culture is, um, is routinely defined as, well, in, in this culture, it's, it's this thing, and in this culture, it's another thing. It's probably a whole range of different, very specific things. So we do need to be more specific about what we mean by culture. I also think culture 
is one of the things that how we define what our community standards are, particularly as it relates to alcohol, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Uh, and there are certain things that are, are and are not acceptable as they vary by culture. So being more specific, I think, is, is my attempt at you know, answering what, what that is. And then when we're more specific about what culture means, we can be more specific about what's influencing uh, influencing drinking. Uh, you brought up the drinking age. Um, there's, there's, that's an area that's probably the most well researched in our field. Um, the evidence is crystal clear. Um, places that have lower drinking ages, more access to alcohol, more likely to drink. There's been changes in those drinking ages, both in the United States and in other countries, when we lower the drinking age. Um, drinking goes up, particularly among those who are not quite of that age. So um, what's happened in the United States, uh, as a specific example, when we had an 18 drinking age, lots of access for students who were in high school, 15, 16, 17 year olds were drinking heavily and accessing alcohol through social sources of people who are able to legally purchase. When that age goes up to 21, they don't have, the high school students don't have as direct access to those social sources of alcohol because they know fewer people who are 21. Um, so that's made a gigantic impact, uh, particularly on high school drinking. The problem for the population that you're talking about, college students, is now we've moved that problem from a high school problem into the college realm. And um, I know a lot of college administrators would like to say, well, let's, you know, let's redefine it and make it a high school problem again. And I think that would be uh, an enormous, enormous uh, error in, in doing that. And, and when, we've, when we've seen um, you know, New Zealand in particular uh, reduce their drinking age, they've seen a whole host of uh, negative consequences creep back down into those younger age groups. Um, so, um, in my view, that would be a terrible idea, and that's been the consistent, um, the consistent conclusions of, of researchers who've looked at that particular issue. Uh, on Sunday sales, uh, it's a challenging issue, um, and it's very similar for uh, days, uh, uh, days and hours of, or I'm sorry, hours of sale as well. Um, there's certainly the phenomenon that you described, which is, well, if we can't get alcohol on Sunday, there's this rush on Saturday before closing time to go get some. Um, and, and that may not be there if there were Sunday sales available. But we know um, that when Sunday sales are available, that there's a lot more overall consumption that's happening on, on those dates. And the reason the producers of alcohol want to open up Sunday sales is because they're going to sell more alcohol and people are gonna drink more alcohol and be more intoxicated as a and experience more problems as a result. So um, I think the evidence is pretty clear on Sunday sales in particular. Um, a resource that I can point you to is the community guide from the CDC. Uh, goes through pretty carefully in, uh, and there's a nice review article that you can download from their website uh, if you're interested in that topic a little bit more. Uh, and then I think the last topic um, oh, now I'm blanking on what else you were. Oh, the, uh, the mediators and moderators. 
Um, I, I think there's no question that we can be more specific and do better research to try and identify the specific causal mechanisms, um, physiologic and psychologic, that are happening from the relationship between consumption and the negative consequences that result. Um, we certainly can do better, um, but as a general theme, uh, from a population level, and I do, I do epidemiologic research, um, it's very consistent that the more consumption there is, the more uh, negative consequences uh, of alcohol that we might care about from a public health perspective. So that's, there's more nuance that Jason can talk about um, there, that some of which we understand, but a lot of which I would say we don't. With the time we have left, we have uh, seven, eight minutes left. What else in terms of other questions, comments, or things that would be helpful to support your efforts with this? I'd say the short answer is no. There's not a, a lot of research on that. The, you're right in characterizing the research that's been done. It's primarily focused on suppliers. Um, and and um, that's been a very effective strategy. I, I'm very sympathetic to the, the plight that you're bringing up, uh, which is you know, how, do you, how do you enforce that out in the neighborhoods at a, at a house party? Um, and I don't think there's been a lot of great research on that topic. What I would say is we're sort of back to um, sort of classic deterrence theory. And um, you know, I, I breezed over that slide in my presentation, but I'll, I'll come back and hit it now. Um, the, the way that people sort of reflexively uh, try to think about punishment or deterrence is to really ramp up the severity of the consequence. So, oh, we're going to give them a really big fine, or we're going to throw them in jail for five days, or you know, something that is perceived as severe. And that goes over really well when you're passing a policy and when you are publicizing it or it's being written up in the newspaper. It's like, oh, that's a really, that's a tough, um, that's a tough policy. The problem is then you've got uh, people who are trying to enforce that that um, may be backing off on, on enforcing it. And, and actually, and, and having a severe punishment really undermines the two other really important components of deterrence theory, which is um, the, the, the swiftness, how quickly that, um, that consequence happens. Uh, it doesn't have to be a real severe one. Uh, uh, from the time that um, the time that the, the uh, discretion happens to the time where the consequence is administered, and the shorter that time period is, the better. Uh, and what happens in the judicial system oftentimes is that period gets really, really long. So, like three years later, I get a consequence from something that happened, um, you know, long ago. And then the um, uh, you know the the certainty of the of the consequence. So. Um, you know, is, is, it, is it every time that I, that I violate this, or is it only you know, every once in a while, um, or the, the you know, sort of a randomness that you know, if I have a transgression, um, I'm going to get caught? Uh, and students have a very clear perception of the likelihood of me getting caught is um, next to zero. Uh, so that, that has no deterrence effect if there's, if there's a policy. Um, and then. Uh, and I think what, what I'm arguing is having a severe penalty really undermines the certainty and the celerity of, of, uh, of those punishments. So that's sort of falling back on theory um, when there's the absence of literature and, and, and empirical evidence on it is, 
just where I'd, where I'd go. Does that help? One more question, and we were just told. What else, if anything? <laughs>